Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, it's part two of the Winston Churchill biography. You and I have both now listened to over 50 hours. That is the longest time I've ever spent listening to anything. Is that also your record? Absolutely. And absolutely amazing book. I can't recommend it enough. The thing I really found really interesting about the book was the conclusion. Usually when you read biographies, they always put sort of the highlights of one's life in the introduction, and then you just sort of end the book. What I really appreciated about this book was it had a very lengthy conclusion that sort of helped summarize everything you'd read. And I felt like it really tied it together. Did you have any thoughts about the conclusion? It's staggering the accomplishments. You could have put it first, but it would kind of take away the surprise of everything else. I was still surprised with things, the conclusion that Churchill had accomplished. In fact, they just had this one little blurb in the conclusion where they said, in a survey of 3,000 British teenagers in 2008, no fewer than 20% of them thought Winston Churchill to be a fictional character. In the same <laughs> survey, 58% thought Sherlock Holmes and 47% thought Eleanor Rigby were real people. The author just took a moment just to say, I think this is kind of an indictment on public education in Great Britain, but he also just kind of tied it to the fact that like Winston Churchill almost seems like a mythical character because of how much he accomplished in his life. He can't be real for all he where he, all where he was and all the things he did and he was involved with and had his hands in both good and bad. They even talked about just like when you summarize just even parts of his life, this is just a couple of interesting statistics was by the time he had died, he had written over 6.1 million words in 37 books. That's more than Shakespeare and Dickens combined. He also had another 5 million words in speeches and letters that he had also written during his life, which also just sort of looks kind of staggeringly proficient. Yeah, well, and he dictated to his secretary. Let's have a shout out to the secretaries who were writing like uh, crazy to keep up with him. I mean, the other thing too is crafting your words while speaking. I know that when I speak or dictate into my phone even, I have to go back and revise it. It's just a challenge. It's amazing. Right, and, and they talked about how some of his speeches had multiple drafts. I just can't imagine the kind of time that this guy put into so many parts of life. Another part I will just throw out as staggering statistics was that they estimate he smoked 160,000 cigars in his life. Yes, he must not have been on TikTok much to be able to have all his time to focus on reading and writing. And by the way, reading too, he read everything. He knew everything that had happened. Well, that was another thing that I found really interesting was about his work life. And they said that he was a major believer in naps. He would literally stop the day in the afternoon and take at least a one hour nap and everybody knew not to bother him. Now he would then work all into the night and he just felt like he could almost get a day and a half's work done as long as he took that afternoon nap. I thought that was something that maybe we should be thinking about nowadays. I think if I was drinking brandy at lunch, I'd certainly need an afternoon nap. The other part of that is also baths, huge fan of baths. He once had a train stop and the locomotive drained of hot water to create a bath in the back country of wherever he was. So yes, big fan of baths. I'm not a bath guy, but I am a nap guy. And it, it seemed to be productive for him. And I just thought those are just some of the 
interesting kind of like things about this leader that that sort of go into everything else he accomplished. And what a life, you know, what a life. We sort of left off with his early life and we sort of were just talking about the lead up into World War II. And as we sort of left off, he kind of was in the political wilderness. He's the only people, um, only person out there speaking out against the rise of Nazi Germany. He's sort of being ignored. He's got three or four followers and that's it. Most of Germany, uh, I'm sorry, most of the UK is still devastated from World War I. Nobody wants war, even though it's kind of inevitable here as Hitler continues to rise and take more and more. And that's where we kind of left. And I just want to start with this paragraph from the conclusion that I think is really fascinating about Churchill. And so here's the best paragraph I read. It says, I can see vast changes coming over a now peaceful world, Churchill predicted to his friend Merlin Evans, great upheavals, terrible struggles, wars such as one cannot imagine. And I tell you, London will be in danger. London will be attacked, and I shall be very prominent in the defense of London. I see into the future. This country will be subjected somehow to a tremendous invasion. By what means, I do not know, but I tell you, I shall be in command of the defenses of London, and I shall save London and England from disaster. I repeat, London will be in danger, and in the high position I shall occupy, it will fall to me to save the capital and save the empire. Churchill said those words not in 1931, 1921, 1911, or even 1901. But in 1891, when he was only 16 years old, he had seen his destiny as a teenager and achieved it. Age 65 and considered by many, including Hitler, to be a hopeless has-been, he came to power and did exactly what he had prescribed for himself half a century earlier. And Don, this book just continues on. A major part of it is his defense of England and the world and the empire during World War II. What else did you think about the second half of the book? I really like that uh, selection you just had there. Did you read A Prayer for Owen Meany? Oh man, I saw the, the, I think I saw the movie, unfortunately. I wish I'd say I had the book, but I did not. I'm in my second time through the book. And the, the point of the book from the author's standpoint, John Irving was, I wanted to write about a situation which would make me believe in God. And the whole idea is Owen Meany, this character, has an idea of what's going to happen. And I don't want to spoil it, but 30 years hence, and it's exactly right. And everything he does in his life is leading up to this thing that happens. And that's why the point of the book is this kid knew everything from the very beginning. And that's why I believe in God as the narrator talks about in the book. And it's almost like that with Churchill. Like it's eerie and scary, all the things that he predicted and he foresaw. It makes me believe in a divine power. And there is at one point in this book, I can't remember if I read that in the other podcast about somebody saying almost an exact same quote of if there is an almighty I truly believe they had a hand in, in bringing Winston Churchill. And that's what's sort of interesting about this book. And obviously the most interesting part of history is to play the what if game. And the what if game is fascinating as Hitler continues to march and continues to increase his holdings now in Europe. The whole world is just sort of stunned by it. And all of a sudden now Churchill sort of is in the room with Neville Chamberlain and Chamberlain is realizing he's got a no confidence vote. He realizes that a lot of people are thinking we've got to do something about Hitler, but it kind of comes down to this unrecorded meeting with Chamberlain and Churchill and then Halifax. And the decision sort of is if Chamberlain can't get the votes to sort of still have a majority of support, 
who is going to be the next prime minister. And it wasn't just a slam dunk that it was going to be Churchill. And that's another major moment as Halifax was much more interested in cutting a deal with Hitler than actually fighting him. Yeah. And Churchill's rhetoric. No, I think we talked about in the first podcast that Neville Chamberlain is sold off his history as this guy that just pacifies Hitler. And it, it wasn't just Neville Chamberlain. It was everybody else, including Halifax, who thought that, all right, we're just going to make a deal with this guy because we don't want another World War I because World War I was awful. And I know that Peaky Blinders is a fictional TV series, but the shadow of World War I is everywhere in the lives of everybody in England at the time. And people did not want that. It was Churchill and few followers out there saying, yes, this is the, we have to take this on. We have to fight them here and there and go right now. And I think they realized that Churchill had to be the guy. That said, it wasn't a slam dunk case and history is totally different if they don't go with Hitler, with Churchill. There's quite a bit of time in that sort of tries to figure out exactly what happened in this meeting where these three people get there. They didn't take minutes. You know, it seems like Chamberlain's like, well, you know, which of you do you think should have it? And both men have this sort of honorable, like, you're not supposed to be ambitious and say that you want to be the leader, but you have to kind of like hint at it. It's sort of like in our colonial uh, founding of America, right? Like it was bad taste to sort of go out and say, I want to be president, even though everybody's ambitious and wants to be the leader. I just think this is sort of interesting, again, that here we are at this great moment and Churchill definitely thinks he should be in charge but he's got to sort of be polite. He's got to sort of let some of his other people kind of uh, politic form a little bit. And I just found that interesting. And here we are in a major crisis and emergency, and it's still kind of unsure if he's going to become the prime minister. Yes. And tradition and gentlemanly behavior seems to be a large focus of being British. I'm not British yet, growth mindset, but I do <laughs> think that there's some of that tradition that goes with it. I don't have many British friends. My parents have a British friend and I want to talk to him about this book, but I just haven't had the occasion to come across him. Interestingly enough, Chamberlain kind of says, look, like we're going to go with Winston. I don't have the votes. Again, as we say, like Chamberlain always just kind of goes down as this weak appeaser. He actually then spends the next year or two of his life helping to keep the opposition party basically in support of Churchill. He goes and... Um, basically doesn't just sit there as this bitter guy off to the sidelines because he got overrun. He actually loyally is there working in the government, sadly dies of cancer uh, about two years after he leaves office, which I just thought was interesting. But the other thing that I think that we don't get right in history is we all think that then Churchill becomes prime minister and everybody just loves this guy, right? And everybody's clapping him on the back and standing ovations. And they just talk about how him walking into the House of Commons, he doesn't have full support. Some people think he nudged Neville out of the way. It just always goes to remind you that like, it wasn't like he had universal support all the time while he was prime minister during World War II. True. And then also the first three years, four years of his leadership, there was nothing but losses and surrenders and pulling back and just hoping and praying that England could hold on until America entered the war. I mean, it was not a round, victorious affair until England and the Soviet Union got involved. One of the things that his dad gave him advice and that he really believed was be honest with the people and trust the people. Give them the information, even if it's bad, and they'll support you. 
And he was kind of good at that. He, he told people like, it's only going to get worse for a while. And I think there's an incredible lesson there. And maybe our own leaders in America that I don't know if they're always just brutally honest with people. If this is how things are going to be at the same time, there's a fine line, I guess, of straddling with hope. And one of the things I just wrote down was some of those speeches, which do make the history books about the finest hour and fight them on the land, fight them on the sea. One thing I was thinking, though, is these speeches are so good. The imagery is so amazing that if it wasn't real life and they put it in a movie, it almost would come off as corny, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I think that it would be hard to believe in a fictional story, especially as he's standing there holding his cane in one arm and has his hand resting with his on his wrist facing up. He had like weird way of holding his hands. It just seems too weird to be true. Right. That's the part that, you know, they've been making a lot of Churchill movies lately and he's been in things and you're like, oh my God, there he is. And nowadays, again, I think we all look at him with just, he's the most perfect individual that everybody loved. You realize that he had to straddle so many lines of fighting coalitions within his own democracy to make sure he had enough support, but also having to look his own citizens in the eyes as they are being bombed daily during the, the British Blitz, right? What was crazy was he would go and visit victims. He would visit bomb sites where people had died. The fact that he was doing that and going into the people, what was interesting was the emotional charge that people would have when they saw him and the support they would give him. The 80% approval rating he was receiving as his entire country is being bombed into the Stone Age, basically. Oh, yeah. He goes out to visit a site where a house had been bombed and somebody had planted the Union Jack, the British flag, on top of the rubble. And he was like in tears as he walked through here and people were all behind him. I mean, I don't think America would respond this way to a president that is losing time after time after time. Everything is bad, yet they are still the leader and telling us it's going to get worse. Yeah, I, I guess that would be a great question, right? Because what's the alternative? You are under attack. Your literal civilization is at stake. It, it would be the easiest time for an opportunist to come up and say, I have a better plan. And yet, what are you going to do? And it's amazing that the, the island itself of, of people collectively just kept throwing their weight in with Churchill and kept believing and, and how nobody wanted to surrender. I mean, that was the thing that just sort of comes out is just daily being bombed and daily seeing death and yet keeping morale up. The other thing I thought was fascinating was, you know, they had to start planning for possibly a German invasion of the island. At one point, there's sort of major discussions about like, do we tell the British people to literally just fight household to household if soldiers are coming into the streets? And they basically said like, yes. And I was wondering about like in America, which they never really reached a whole lot of fighting besides in Alaska during World War II. But imagine if we were invaded, do you think the president just, gives the orders to all citizens, like never surrender, fight until the last person. Certainly not what the French would do. That's true. That's true. And this is something I texted you about was, I was stunned at the French response in World War II. I had heard the jokes ever since I was growing up about France and World War II. And I never realized like, kind of what a disaster France was. And I guess I should have done more research, but I always thought jokes were unfair about France and about kind of how they behaved and stuff like that. I just want to read you this small quote from the book about France is, here we go. The Germans have now kind of pushed through Belgium. They're right on the borders of France. 
And here's this paragraph in the book, and it says, any optimism Churchill might have felt was completely expunged when the French general, Gamelin, explained that German armor had broken through a 40-mile-wide front, only 110 miles from central Paris. When Churchill asked, where are your reserves, Gamelin said, none. When he asked Gamelin his plan for a counterattack, the commander of French forces simply shrugged his shoulders. And you're like, what? What are we doing here? Aren't you, aren't you defending themselves? And it is amazing how fast France falls. And then when the American, British, Canadian forces take back and re-land in France years later, they find the countryside fine. The cows are eating, the houses look fine because the French people just surrendered. They didn't fight house to house. They just gave it all up. And Churchill's frustration with de Gaulle and the other French leaders is just palatable. I mean, I've landed at Charles de Gaulle Airport in France, and I thought, I don't know who Charles de Gaulle is. I think he's a French leader, World War II. Now I have a totally different experience. I'd spit on the floor at Charles de Gaulle Airport. Well, that was the thing I kept trying to think is absolutely no fight. France obviously fought World War I. They had a huge line of defense they had uh, built up for Germany, but they totally were so outdated. They weren't ready for, obviously, the blitzkrieg that Hitler brought in. But the fact that like they didn't mount much of a defense, in fact, a lot of people think one of Hitler's major mistakes was basically he spent a lot of time trying to make sure that they had secured and really got France under their control. When obviously France was so passive, they should have just kept going right away to Britain and they probably wouldn't have given Britain any more time to get ready to mount their own defense. And Britain wouldn't have been prepared and without American backing, they would have died they would have been lost. I mean, ultimately, the big counterfactual here is what if Hitler doesn't attack Russia? Because four out of five German soldiers that died in World War I died on the Eastern Front fighting the Soviet Union. That really saved England. At times in the book, Churchill talks about sending supplies to Russia constantly, even though nobody really liked Stalin and nobody trusted Stalin, they still sent his mayor's supplies that way because Stalin's people fought. And that's where the Germans were dying. That's what kept Germany from invading England. That's a not a poorly understood fact of the war. I like that you brought that up because that was something that I feel like was a, a theme throughout the book was Russia's sacrifice in World War II never gets spoken about. They were There was a statistic in here that of the three nations, England, America, and Russia, nine out of every 10 soldiers was Russian that died in the war. Why don't you think we talk more about Russia's role? Because I feel like our books, obviously, they're going to be, our history books are going to be American-centric. But do you think it's because we have such a complicated thought process with Stalin, with gulags, with the famines, with, with tons of soldiers that were killed just because they were unwilling to fight? Or at one point, the Nazis even publicized the fact that they found this mass grave of 15,000 Polish officers that had been killed by Stalin and kind of church, I'm sorry, yeah, Churchill and, and Roosevelt sort of have to look the other way and they're still working with him because I guess it's real politic, right? He is their ally because Hitler is their common enemy. Yeah, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, as Sun Tzu said. And without Russia taking this just constant beating and fighting the, the Nazis forever, then they're nowhere. Roosevelt and uh, Churchill don't have a leg to stand on. So yeah, they tolerate him and they know that he is a 
terrible person. But to go back to your original question, yeah, it's it's just the fraught relationship that Russia or the Soviet Union or whatever you want to call it has with the West. And they've never really been allies. They're untrustworthy. To this day, it was the Cold War, and now it's Putin, that we don't trust these, these Russians, but they have taken the greatest sword for World War II and not lionized in any way. By the way, what's this book about? The book's about Churchill. It could have been about Stalin, and but it'd be a much more complicated book. That's true. Churchill, in a lot of ways, comes out as somebody that's just the good guy, right? He's the good guy. But is it also because in one of the books that he wrote was a history of the English speaking people. And he was somebody who's obviously very proud of his empire. How much of that just comes to the fact that we obviously have historical ties with Great Britain, culturally, politically, we have a lot more in common. And therefore, it's always easy to see us as the good guys and Stalin as just sort of a begrudgingly, he had to be our ally, but we never really liked him. Well, in Stalin, when you hear Stalin, you think of the death of millions of people in, the, in Russia, and you don't really think of the heroism in World War II. When you think of Churchill, you think of nothing but heroism in World War II, but you don't think of the famine in India that killed millions that his administration presided over. Right. And, you know, this book is peppered, especially towards the second part of the war, as it looks like the turning points now happened, America's in the war, and slowly... Germany is just having to recede back and further back into their you know, starting point. But what you start to see now is Churchill and the major leaders looking at a world that's got to sort of get remade. And it's amazing how much real politics starts to happen. There's a scene where Churchill is meeting with Stalin for the, I don't know, fifth or sixth time. And he's like, okay, Yugoslavia, like you can be 90% in control of this place. And we're going to be in charge of Greece. And they're literally just cutting up nations and millions of people and talking about who has influence, but it's also realistic. They have the militaries, they have the armies, they're going to be victorious. And it's hard to kind of see the world being talked like that, but it clearly is. Well, this includes the founding of Israel. This includes the dividing of Pakistan and India in that time, not directly with Stalin, but in general, it's the formation of all these people. And here are these few individual men making these decisions while drinking heavily. While drinking heavily. Well, and again, you and I love to talk about smoke-filled rooms and what is it that people say when they're not in front of the microphone. And I just thought this was a great joke. Uh, before America had joined the war, Harry Hopkins, who was FDR's sort of right-hand man, was over visiting Churchill. And at this point, and one thing that history books don't talk often about was that Great Britain was basically bankrupt before America even had joined the war. They they'd pretty much spent all of their gold reserves and everything trying to buy any weapon they could. So he not only is Churchill trying to, you know, fight off his, uh, his, his greatest enemy ever in Germany, but he's also just trying to figure out a way to like keep finances rolling. And there's just this great moment where they talk about the gold because America is, is doing some lending at this point. And this paragraph just says, a hint of Churchill's irritation with the United States might be noticeable from his only half-joking question to Hopkins at dinner the following night. He asked what the Americans would do when they had accumulated all the gold in the world and the other countries decided that gold was of no value except for filling teeth. <laughs> well, replied the frail but urbane Hopkins, we shall be able to make use of our unemployed in guarding it. And I just, you know, America's in the Great Depression, and here are leaders just making fun of other people's misery. 
Well, also, it's a tremendous question. I mean, what gold is not really worth anything. Gold's not used for much, as Churchill made reference to. What is to say that gold's actually going to have value? I mean, it kind of comes back to our questions we have now with currency about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and what has value. And I wonder if that was the last time when people said, is gold really worth anything? What if we just don't say it's worth anything because you have it all and we can move on to something else? It's such an interesting moment. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those ones where I guess I got to find the right book to just kind of, you know, financing a war. Obviously, the bond market is a big deal, but that's not an easy thing. And that takes a whole nother level of expertise to try to just to continue to give people the motivation to want to go fight it or produce for it and stuff like that. Did you get to, did you catch the date when the last payment was made by the British people to the United States for the Lend-Lease Act, which was borrowing and uh, getting destroyers to help with World War II? It was, it was like a, I remember that was, it wasn't like a hundred year deal they cut or something like that. Or It was finally paid off. These World War II destroyers were paid off in 2006. Jeez. What a great deal for Hitler or for uh, for sorry for Winston Churchill though, right? Like, yeah, he, oh, yeah. He, he convinced us to give them all that free stuff, and they just paid over time. In fact, didn't they also though trade naval ports and stuff like that too? Like they were they were willing to use anything they had just to keep financing military goods and stuff like that. Well, they had to. They had no choice. They just had to keep this thing going, hoping for help from the Soviets and from the Americans, which ultimately did come, but. I mean, I just can't, the desperation is pretty, pretty obvious in the book. Totally. That's the thing that I think I didn't really realize as much. And I think Churchill did realize was my strategy essentially is don't surrender and just hope eventually the Americans can get in this fight. You know, he, the, the fact that he held out for two, two and a half years before the Americans join in is really impressive when you think, all of the bombing and the terror that must have been every day. And to realize that you're the one who's making the decisions. And it's not like there's anybody who's going to do better, but just to realize and have to look people in the eye and just say, yeah, it's probably going to get worse. That's got to be so tough. Can't imagine. And yet people were behind him. I don't know if it's just because it's the British people and they like doing hard things and charging into gunfire, or if it's just the leadership, I have no idea. The one thing I was thinking about, though, is if your nation is at war and total destruction is one of the options, maybe it becomes actually easier to make decisions. Maybe it becomes easier just to rally people because there's such a singular focus to it, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Because one of the things I wondered was like, imagine if World War II and imagine if the bombing of Britain happens during the era of cable news, Twitter, the Internet, (laughs) Facebook. Do you think he could have kept a coalition, you know, around it all? I mean, at this point, he's probably speaking. He's given some of those great speeches to try to keep up hope. But it's not like the opposition is going to get a ton of equal time to try to tear down the strategy. Whereas it would seem like it'd be really hard to keep people focused if, if you're living in an era where everybody gets a little microphone, if you know what I'm saying. So you're saying that it's something about the time period that allows him to hold together this coalition. And I think my perspective is, it is it something about being British, that the British people would do this even to today? And it's a difference between continents and countries, or is it different between time period? Maybe I'm just romanced by the Britishness of the book, that I think it's a British thing. But 
I might have this all wrong. That's a really good point. I, I wonder if we're romanced by the idea that they didn't have all of these various internet, social media, communication devices, but is it also a, a cultural thing? I mean, I would say that a couple summers ago when Brexit, right, it seemed like they were able to stir up enough people in the country to want to want to leave the European Union and stuff like that. So I, I would assume that there's a dissension out there and a, a democracy that has its own healthy debates. But it's possible maybe there's a cultural thing. It always just seems like in America, a lot of people are like, well, what are you for? Because I'm just going to be against it, right? And a war for, for survival, I, it would be interesting to see if we could all get on the same page. I mean, 9-11 to me seems like maybe the last time that a lot of Americans were in support of at least the initial invasion of Afghanistan. But as you saw, that quickly sped out. And, and you know, geez, the invasion of Iraq, that was already a 50-50 supported thing. And I can't even imagine if we'd had uh, Twitter and some of those other devices by that time. I think you're a little bit pessimistic because we just had a pandemic. And when the pandemic hit initially and people were really scared, before all these skeptics came out, people all did stay home. I remember looking out, I live near Adams Road in Rochester, which is a fairly busy street, and I saw no cars on weekday mornings because everybody was staying home. And that was a group effort that everybody came together in. Now, later, of course, that dwindled, but it's not a war. There wasn't like battles and victories and losses. It was just a continuously odd situation. But everybody was on the same page initially. And now there's a little bit more derision. But I think initially you saw that, yes, people were together. People were like, all right, we're all going to stay home. We're not going anywhere because we want to help each other survive. No, and that's a good point. But I would say maybe about one month, month and a half, everybody was fairly unified on it. And then that's when you started to see dissension of people that didn't like the lockdowns and the shutdowns. And that's when voice came up to sort of the opposition. And I'd argue ever since then, one of the great debates in America is about lockdowns or not lockdowns or science or not science, vaccines or no vaccines. And I feel like we're now just out there debating all of these things. And I just wonder, like the the bombing and the the British and you know the Battle of Britain basically went over for almost a year. Basically, do you think we as a nation could hold out, stand the same page for that sort of time? I think so. I think if Churchill's our leader during the pandemic, then he gets people to be solidified and working together. Our leaders at the state and federal level were at each other's throats, were questioning each other. We're not unified. And if we had a better leader, I think it would have lasted more than a month. And maybe that's similar in that it's the good leader in England that leads people to all be on the same page. But they did just come off World War I, which left the scars, but also left the solidarity. And is that also something to be said for the parliamentary system of how their government works? One of the things that Churchill had was a very supportive coalition. Even the opposition party joined the government because it was wartime. And therefore, in some ways, he had the support of a lot more people. Whereas, you know, in our nation, you've kind of got a two-party system. And therefore, whichever party's in charge, generally the other party is supposed to be the quote-unquote loyal opposition. But it usually just never comes off as very loyal, or it seems like the opposition is always quite loud. I did come off of this book thinking, I really like the parliamentary system where you can form a government with various different parties and include each other. And it doesn't have to be this one party believes this one thing. So the other party believes the opposite, even if they don't necessarily make sense. 
So I, I did come off with a lot of admiration for the parliamentary system. Well, one of the things, too, that does get forgotten is that Churchill has, I think, two or three votes that he has to survive in the House of Commons of essentially no confidence. Or one of the things they'll, they'll tend to bring up is like, hey, I need another vote to see if I still have support of the government and stuff like that. And every once in a while, you've got people that are getting frustrated with the lack of progress or some of the losses that they did have. And every time, though, he still won by large majorities. But I just sort of was reminded that it's so easy to look back in history and just to kind of think that an entire nation, even at the very micro level, was all on the same page. And you just realize that, like, no, in democracy, one of the, the interesting aspects of it is you're constantly having to look around you and try to figure out who wants your job. But then at the same time, acknowledge like that person wants my job, but how am I still going to work with them, right? And how am I still going to build a consensus to keep moving forward? And you could say it's one of the really interesting aspects of trying to give people choice in their government, but at the same time, having to have people work together that naturally maybe don't always agree on things. Yeah, and it's kind of thrown out there as a... Um... <laughs> It's a bit of a political device saying like, I know you're going to support me, but you're questioning me. So I'm going to have a full vote of support. Oh, look, I won by 90%. Okay, now do what I'm asking. So it is this interesting device of that I'm really quite unfamiliar from because it's so different from American politics. I just can't get over the fact that this guy knew exactly how to talk to other world leaders and other generals. And at the same time, he was able to constantly get on the radio and be a presence and make people feel something. And there were multiple quotes where people in Great Britain just said, he made us feel as if we were living in historic times and that our lives mattered in ways that were like beyond ourselves. And not everybody can do that. Certainly not after, I'm guessing, three, four strokes and three or four heart attacks that was uh, called, uh, what is it, trauma, cardiac trauma or something they called it in the book. The guy was physically falling apart and yet still able to make that presentation, able to convince people. Yeah, he's got a, he's flying, you know, he has to take these crazy flight patterns to try to stay out of the war because he's got to go to these various conferences and these various meetings, usually in unpressurized cabins with just like a mattress on the floor, which is just crazy when you think about early flight and stuff like that. Although at the same time, there's just this character who looms, of course, larger in life. And they talked about as France is falling and usually on a daily basis, he was flying over to France into areas trying to see if there's any kind of defense he can help them with. He would then fly back to Great Britain. And there's just this great paragraph where this was sort of a work day at the end of a long day flying back and forth. It says, he took a telephone call from Ambassador Kennedy and told him that America would be a laughingstock on the stage of history if she only offered British economic and no military aid. And at 1 a.m., he lay on the sofa of the Great Hall, puffed on his cigar, discussed how to increase the RAF's frontline fighter strength, and then, very unusually for him, told one or two dirty stories before saying, good night, my children. Just... I don't know. It seems like he's a guy you could hang out with and, you know, um, he could compartmentalize a lot of stuff, I guess. Well, reminded me a lot of Lincoln because Lincoln was doing something similar, just losing and losing and losing in the Civil War, trying to keep this thing together, trying to piece together a victory over the South, but at the same time telling stories and jokes. And that was one of my favorite parts of the Lincoln movie 
And also in the book that he's just this amazing storyteller that could bring people together. So although the, you know, body nature of the dirty jokes are interesting, I think it's about bringing people together, making people drawn to him. Definitely. The, the power of humor, the power that he could even make his, you know, biggest political enemies sort of laugh because of his comebacks and stuff like that are definitely part of his charm. And I also think part of his effect at building coalitions, which I think is interesting. You mentioned Lincoln, and I had actually written this down, and I wanted to ask you about that, is towards the end of the war, he seems like he kind of wishes, and I guess maybe I'm, I want to make sure you're interpreting this if you saw the way I did, but he kind of seems like he wished he had been killed by the end of the war. Once it looked like Great Britain was going to win, there seemed to be a slight part of him that would have liked to have maybe died in battle. He's like desperate to be on a battleship during the D-Day invasion, but they're like, look, like we can't get you out of harm's way, so don't do that. He's constantly pushing to get to the front lines during the Battle of the Bulge. And he always seems to kind of glorify the idea of dying in service. Did you pick up on that at all? Oh, yeah. And every time that London is bombed, he's up on the rooftops watching the bombers come in, puffing on a cigar. He's flying like all these people died on these flights to these meet with other politicians in other countries. And he's just there. But that's what he was from his very beginnings. I don't think it's something you could change. It was just a habit. Like, let's go to the front lines. Let's get in this. And avoid death somehow, but yet be right and present. And I think it's absolutely right that he was wishing to die as a martyr and part of this effort, especially as the effort was winning. But then he does come back and they do need him after the war, after he's no longer prime minister, they bring him back for his extra session where he's the prime minister again. He's, he's just an eternal character. He just doesn't die. But do you think... Part of it is, man, if I died now and knowing that we're going to eventually win this war, I become lionized even more in history because I died on the battlefield, having brought, brought things to an end. Because I was thinking again, you mentioned Lincoln. Lincoln, of course, dies at the very beginning of his second term as president as the Civil War is about ready to be won. Nowadays, Lincoln, of course, in our history and in mythology is, is lionized as this guy that could that won the war and often people wonder what he would have done with reconstruction any if anything reconstruction is such a complicated kind of dark part of our history and a part of me wonders if Lincoln is not going to be able to hold together the kind of coalitions that he maybe had during the war and if Lincoln's name changes in history if he had lived through his second term and you know you see Churchill here again like having to build coalitions. He's not as interested in all of the domestic issues that his country is now facing as the war's ending. As we see there, he gets pretty much knocked out of his job um, right at the end of VE Day, mostly because he's kind of taking his eye off the ball and the people in Great Britain have already moved on to like issues of housing and, and the economy and jobs and healthcare. And it just makes me think about like how hard it is now to deal with many issues than just the singular issue of a war. Well, in the war, he was uniquely suited to because that was his entire focus. The production of war materials, he had amazing hands in that and everything else that, that was related to the effort. He was the number one strategy guy, the number one materials guy, the number one. He was all into war. And I don't think the other stuff held his attention very well. There's a great moment 
There's a couple great moments of him and Roosevelt interacting. And in fact, there's a really good book called Franklin and Winston that is about the relationship of Churchill and Roosevelt. There's several times where they quote Churchill, like interacting with Roosevelt and then leaving the room and then almost teary-eyed telling an aide, God, I love that man. And there's just this great scene where he was so happy when they had met in Cairo and he had figured out a way to like make a car that Roosevelt could get in so that they could go visit the pyramids and the Sphinx together. And, um, you know, he sees this moment where Roosevelt can't even get out of his chair by himself. And so he wants to give him some dignity and, and leave the room. Just the interaction, though, between the two people is just it's touching to me. Oh, yeah. And there is tremendous love on both sides that they are respecting each other. Also, as they're falling apart together at the end of World War II, he, it's just, it's a neat story. Well, and both guys being as old as they are, and that's something that it's kind of brought up, and I think it's kind of interesting, is just the idea of travel. The fact that 10 weeks before Roosevelt would die, he went all the way back over to Europe to meet up with Stalin and Churchill to, again, kind of continue to plan the end of the war and, and the next segments. Again, Churchill not being a healthy man and doing all the traveling he was doing. You don't realize that like, these are not luxury planes like they are flying in nowadays. Well, and initially it was ships. Roosevelt uh, met Churchill off the coast of Canada in a ship that they uh, had steamed across the Atlantic Ocean through U-boats all over the place. And then uh, later on, it is planes. But Roosevelt's near the very end of his life. Everybody's like, he looks terrible. We're not going to see him again. He might not make it. And there's a guy who didn't want to die in battle, but was just trying to stay alive long enough to see this through, which ultimately he couldn't due to numerous health issues. Right. And I always sort of wonder, and I, boy, a long time ago, I remember I listened to a biography on Truman, is it doesn't seem like Truman was that clued in on, on what was going on. They treated him pretty much like a traditional vice president, which is just always kind of left out in the field. And that's another kind of, I think, interesting story about a guy coming in with a lot on their plate and, and acting fairly admirably, I think. Yeah, he didn't know about the program for the atomic weapons. He didn't know about a whole lot of things. Had to be briefed and brought up to speed. And ultimately, he and Churchill also become close and two around the United States. It's interesting that there's not much shared with him. I mean, without these leaders, where are you? Where if Churchill disappears, I guess Churchill has more of a right-hand man than Roosevelt did. But still, it's uh, it'd be interesting if they it could be quite have gone quite poorly. The other thing that I think maybe should be considered is that at the beginning of the war, as Great Britain is sort of the last democracy standing against Hitler, he's the guy in charge and he's begging America to get in the fight, begging them. And, and then eventually the Russians join and then the Americans join. And now you've kind of got your big three nations. But because Great Britain is financially exhausted and militarily, they don't have the production capacity as America does. Churchill realizes that the relationship between he and America is shifting and that America is just able to make more and more decisions because they've got more and more resources invested. And the fact that he's able to obviously still be a major player, but the fact that he's able to step back a little bit and begrudgingly accept that he's not going to get to call all the shots. I kind of feel like that's something that some people need to kind of think about a little bit is it's not easy to kind of take a step back and let somebody else be in charge when you've been in charge. Well, it's very humble, especially for somebody that 
was constantly promoting the British Empire and to take a backseat to one of their colonies and realize that, well, this is what we have to do to get through this. But I mean, that is in the book and other places too. He would love to have these tanks and weapons in England to help fight a or Nazi invasion, but ultimately ends up sending them to the Soviet Union. And because we got to keep them fighting in the Soviet Union and half of these ships are sunk by British U-boats on the way to the Soviet Union, it doesn't matter. He keeps on sending it because it's the health, the health of Soviet Union enables the health of England, which is hard to do compared to just keeping it at home. So there's a humbleness and a kind of, wise decision-making that is there, that's not driven by ego. And once again, I want to turn our attention back to France and Mr. de Gaulle, because, you know, de Gaulle's sort of a bit player in this book, but he's over in Britain and basically he's always just sort of marching around, bossing people around, even though he doesn't really have much of a country to, to support him with. And there's just this great scene towards the end of the war where he's being rude and standoffish with Churchill and not agreeing to do anything. In fact, Churchill wanted de Gaulle to make a big, a great big speech before D-Day to essentially, you know, try to boost morale and, and de Gaulle doesn't want to do that. And Churchill says, look here, I am the leader of a strong unbeaten nation, Churchill told him. Yet every morning when I wake, my first thought is, how can I please President Roosevelt? And my second thought is, how can I conciliate Marshal Stalin? Your situation is very different. Why then should your first waking thought be, how can you snap your fingers at the British and Americans? I love that. And yet, at first I was like, ugh, France. Once again, they quit. And then they got this annoying guy, de Gaulle. But then I was thinking about it, and I'm thinking, you know what? De Gaulle, by doing this, essentially protects a lot about France. And is able to sort of get a restored France after World War II. And a part of me wonders, because the guy is such a jerk, maybe that actually did the best things for his nation. And maybe if I was France, I would really respect how he handled himself. Just because he's a stick in the mud and a pain, he's able to advocate for France to get what they get. Exactly. I guess so. He just, I mean, it's being helpful and being a hero by being a Scrooge and a pain. And I guess in my mind, that's very French. Is that racist to say? Ugh, I think so, probably. I mean, you could say that his thought is when he woke up, France, not winning the war, but just France. And I could see, though, where if I were French today, I would look back and say, you know, perhaps this guy preserved my nation better by, by acting and behaving in these sort of what almost seems like intolerable ways if you're trying to fight a war. But I kind of almost gained an admiration after I read that. Well, and you can't have two, you can't, he can't be Churchill. He's not going to really pacify the Americans and uh, help the Russians. He has no power. He has no production. He has no real, his only real way to affect it is just to be a pain in the side and advocate constantly for France, which I guess is his best move. Yeah. I, I just thought that was interesting. Something else I just thought was an interesting fact was Churchill at one point was complaining about how the Americans for every soldier they were putting on the front lines, they had like, you know, two or three reserve support people in the military doing other things. And one of the interesting statistics I read was that when we stormed the beaches of Morocco to begin Operation Torch, we immediately built three Coca-Cola bottling plants. Yes, yes, I remember that vividly. And Churchill was constantly critical of the Americans in their, uh, they had so many military forces, they were promoting the back lines and supplies and 
luxuries, I'm sure, as he would see it. Certainly the Russians weren't putting Coca-Cola bottling areas there. They were just trying to throw babies at tanks or whatever they did to try and keep winning. The Americans have always understood logistics and supplies, keeping the, uh, the soldiers happy and stuff like that. But I just, all I could see is like five guys building the beachhead and then all of a sudden, all right, Coca-Cola bottling plant here, go, go, go. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, another thing that was interesting is again, as the war is ending, the rivalry with Russia continues now to increase. And you can see the tension as people realizing this is coming true and all of a sudden, you know, Churchill at one point authors a study by a very secretive group about, like, should we fight the Russians or will the Russians fight us? How would a war like that happen? This thing's winding down in Europe. We've got Japan. But is it possible Russia could form an alliance with Japan? How, do, how worried do we have to be? He seems very on the ball about a post kind of, you know, Europe after the war and what it's going to look like. And you kind of realize that's where everything gets really complicated. And I always wonder if our history books do a good job talking about how confusing it is. Again, a war is either going to be over or it's not. But once it's over, who's in control? All the vacuums of power. And you clearly see Russia trying to gobble up all of these different places. Yeah, I, it, it is the case that he is right on and knows Russia well. He also spent a lot of time with Stalin. A lot of drinks were consumed there. And during that time period, he's, he's never really trusting them and he's fearing them, not only for the bed bugs at the ratty motel where they stay when they're in Russia, but also for the general unknown motivations of the Russians. And so he's, he's predicting well ahead of everybody else. But we don't know. Maybe on the inside... De Gaulle's warning of the Russian threat. Maybe Roosevelt was. I just don't know that side of the story. Yeah, there's, there's some interesting scenes there where you've got Stalin joking about mass killing all the Nazi officers and Churchill storms out of the room and then Joe comes out of the room and starts laughing and being like, hey, come on, I'm just telling a joke here. You almost have Stalin like being like a, a bad guy wrestler where he's playing up all the rumors are true. I have killed all of these people before the war and, and it's, it's almost eerie and creepy. And yet I can't imagine having to like strike the deal with this kind of a devil and stuff like that. Oh, he is the ultimate bad guy wrestler. I mean, but he's literally the evil guy. It's not in a farce. He is the bad, bad person. However, the punishment that his troops and his people are able to deal out against the Nazis are the ones, like we said earlier, that allow the war to win, to be a one. And that motivation is probably absolute terror at what will happen if we do lose the Nazis. Right. That's true. And so the war gets won. And then immediately, we talked about this a little bit earlier, he loses an election for the prime minister spot. It was all basically on domestic issues, but I thought that was a great reminder of what have you done for me lately? Or do you still have your eye on the ball of what the people are thinking about? I kind of think about George H.W. Bush who won the first Iraq war back in the early 90s and then lost the election more because of the economy. Yeah, and the challenging nature of politics. You can, it's the people's desire for whatever they desire is insatiable and immediate. And I think there's also a whole lot of uh, parliament that was like, okay, we got to keep Churchill to the end of the war. We're not going to be able to get rid of him. But once it ends, we can really move on to something else. And they were probably courting that idea for a while, I'd imagine. He, during that time, comes to America and gives his famous Iron Curtain speech, which that always does get into the history books. One of the things I found interesting, though, was 
once he gave that speech, it was not universally beloved or enjoyed. A lot of people in America and in the UK condemned the speech as they thought it was warmongering. And Churchill's like, I'm just being realistic. Like, if we're not out there with a, a big stick ready to contain Soviet, you know, the Soviet Union, another war could happen here again. And I just thought that was interesting of here's this guy, like, right, uh, ready to fight World War One, definitely ready to fight World War Two, and already thinking of the next potential conflict. Well, it's not surprising, considering that they didn't want to get into World War II because World War I was awful. Well, they just got done with World War II. They don't want to hear it. It's the same sentiment. He just sort of becomes a celebrity then. And, and one is he eventually gets back to being the prime minister for his, uh, they called it his Indian summer uh, premiership. They talked about how he just always had this dream of getting America and Russia and Britain in the room and kind of coming up with sort of a new world peace order. And they just sort of talked about how like the Americans were like, you're way too wishful here. Like we are going to be taking the Russians very seriously and essentially what was what develops the Cold War. But they also just talk about how most of this second premiership was all about like domestic issues, which if you've just won a war, it's kind of hard and not very exciting to start like slogging through, like how do we build more homes? Like how do we end rationing? Like you don't realize that for five years after World War II, Great Britons were still in shortages and rationing and trying to rebuild their nation, which again, people are like, oh, the war's over. Everything must've been great. Well, yeah, the infrastructure that was destroyed doesn't instantly come back and you have to rebuild that. Um, I think what I think of Churchill's Indian summer premiership, it's really this long bomb shot that they want to get this real peace settlement. It's towards the end of every American presidential season that they get to try to make peace between Israel and Palestine. Because if you are uh, Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or whomever, and you could certify your legacy by getting peace in Israel and Palestine, and it hasn't happened yet, but I think that was the Churchill idea at the time. If I could just get this big peace agreement, then that will be further my legacy. And I'm the only one that's capable of doing it. So that was the hope and the dream. It just didn't happen. That's the only dream of Churchill's that didn't happen, I think. Well, and, and you have a lot of people in his own party just being like, okay, when are you going to step aside? And he just does love the spotlight. There's, there's talk of where he showed up to uh, Queen Elizabeth's wedding late, I think, and then got a big standing ovation because he just knows that whenever he's going to walk into a room, he's going to be applauded. And I think he loves the spotlight. I think he loves the game as well of politics. And you could also just see, though, where he's just getting a little older. He's forgetting a little bit more. He's not necessarily got his finger on the pulse of what the nation wants. And you can just see everybody wanting him to leave, but they know they can't push him out. Well, and who's to blame him? He's living out the dream. He Everywhere he goes, he is, people love him and he gets to speak and people listen to him. He's Barack Obama, except for a war hero too. There's, a, there's an interesting quote where he suffers another minor stroke. The guy had a lot of those. And they talked about how like he, it happened in a public place and all of a sudden he was slurring his speech and stumbling and they said that nobody thought it was unusual because they had seen him drinking so much all the time that it just seemed normal. Yes, the trick is to drink a little too much all the time. That's what Churchill said in the book. And uh, I, I guess it gives you a little bit of leeway when you are a little off kilter. The guy drank a ton, smoked a ton, although it was more just consistently throughout the day. And again, you just think about his health and uh, 
you know, probably not a great way to live uh, your life if you're trying to live long, although he made it to his 90s. So what should we really, uh, I guess, judge? Imagine if he had the Tom Brady diet. He would have lived far, far longer and been healthier, maybe in the uh, mischief maker in politics forever. <laughs> I would love to have him look at TB12 and uh, just what kind of, you know, quip would he make about that? <laughs> He'd love him. He's a winner, just like Churchill. Yeah, that's true. That's true. After the war, he also publishes six volumes on World War II. And uh, they're all like immediate international bestsellers. I thought that was just sort of fascinating. And of course, that's the thing I find most interesting about Churchill with not only World War I, but also World War II is because he was there and he's got access to lots of sources. And because some of his books were the first large scale books that were released, he will always have his fingerprints on shaping the perception of the war. And I wonder sometimes, do you think that's why we sometimes discount the Russian contribution to the war is because Churchill wrote in English and, and we probably read his books before we read any Russian books about this event? Well, it also shapes the perception for every future historian because he's kind of got all the primary sources. He's shaping the narrative and he's setting it all up for who's going to be the hero. He's wrote the history, so he controls that. That was something I thought was interesting. Again, going back to the conclusion of the book was they talked about how Churchill fully thought he was going to be an important man. And from the veriest beginnings, saved everything, saved any letter he'd ever written, any document he'd ever written. He saved all of his receipts, all of his spending accounts. And therefore, there's just this large, almost impossible to read through archive of Churchill stuff because he knew that he was going to be important and he wanted people to be able to access all of these documents so that they could learn about him. Absolutely. I mean, it's crazy. The amount of materials he must have had is just limitless. Also, all the letters with, from his wife. I don't know if they carbon copied or what they did, but he had all these letters that he sent to his wife who was on steamships in other regions of the world or all over the place. And I kept thinking as I was listening to the book, the amount of research done by the author, the amount of time going, pouring over all these things must have been, I just can't even imagine. It's a 50 hour book that came from probably 50,000 hours of research. I would, I would love to interview this author or any of these great biography writers and ask them, what is your process? I'm sure they've got to have a, a research team of assistants, but to take all the documents and then to actually sit down and try to start writing the narrative of it is just got to be a tremendous amount of work. I mean, this is a 1000 page book that um, we basically listened through and it's dense. I mean, it is a dense book. There's so much here. You're right. It's pretty fascinating. And yet one of the things they said though, was that only within the last 10 years have all of Churchill's papers been released. And even the King's private papers have been released. In fact, the King's diary is, is referenced quite a bit throughout this book as Churchill had to have a weekly uh, meeting with the King. And often that's where Churchill expressed his most frustration with the Americans and some of the allies during the war. Well, and he met with the queen as well. The queen who's still the queen who was that's there. That's amazing. We're one person removed. It is, you know, and I, I've, my wife and I watched the first two seasons of the Netflix show, The Queen, 
And you really gain that appreciation for everybody she knew. I mean, there's an episode with uh, Jacqueline Kennedy and all of the major players throughout the Cold War. And, and again, it goes back to Churchill. She was 25 when she became queen. That's impressive in its own right. Well, yeah, and has seen tremendous amounts have come and gone. And it, 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 there's so much happening in this book. And she talks about it all the time. One of the things that they said is, is when Churchill passed, the absolute mourning that the country sort of went into, they said they had three days, um, over 300,000 people filed past his casket. Uh, the queen and the king attended his funeral, which is not a tradition that normal, normally royalty does. They said, though, that more Americans watched his funeral on TV than JFK's, which I thought was fascinating. Yes, and it's... And then as the ship went down the Thames, people saluted and came and cried. And yes, he is a hero. This is why British people don't think he's real. I think so. There almost seems a mythical-like quality to how he lived. In fact, in some ways, because of the archives that exist of everything that happened, because the fact that World War II, there are videos and pictures and so many survivors that can continue to talk about it, I wonder how he'll be looked at 500 years from now. I mean, it's hard for us to kind of understand, you know, the Revolutionary War or the Civil War because they happened so long ago and there's nobody still alive to talk about it. And most people will be probably dead within the next 10 years that were involved in World War II. But how will we remember it 500 years from now? Do you think his name only grows or do you think his name just becomes another important name in history? I think he's bound to shrink in value as other things happen. In addition, my kids are not interested in any basketball highlights that are not in HD. And Winston Churchill is certainly not in HD. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I, I, it's funny, though, listening to this book and listening to some of the speeches, especially some of those ones with World War II, it's pretty spellbinding, the power of words that they can have even almost 100 years later. Yes, and I enjoyed the book as well. I would warn any listener that there is a whole lot of discussion of British politics that I would be uh, dishonest if I didn't say that I want my mind wandered as there was tremendous discussions about who's in charge of the exchequer. And I was much more interested <laughs> in World War II and other aspects of his life and with his children and his family. So there is some of that that you do have to wade through. Yes, I would argue the, the first 20 hours uh, that you and I already talked about were good, but there is a lot of, you know, what are we going to do about the unions in the North and stuff like that, that maybe don't feel as relevant. And you're just kind of like, when are we going to have the rise of Hitler? When are we going to have the rise of Hitler, right? Yes. And there are some discussions of things that you just get a little bit mundane, but among the mundane things are also the gold. We're going to cut down to only four cigars a day to get through the, uh, the hard times here at my resort that I own. Right. No, there is just the, it's the quips. It's the humor that, that he brings in all the time. And I'd also just recommend if anybody's like, look, I don't want to read a thousand pages. I don't want to listen to 50 hours. I'll just go back to the conclusion is really good in that it summarizes all aspects, but it also takes in all of the critiques that other historians have had of Churchill and it kind of comes up with other answers for them. And I just think that in itself is a really smart way to learn about this remarkable man. For sure. Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking with you this week about this book. Um, is there any other comments you have before uh, we maybe never talk about Winston Churchill again? I'm sure we'll bring up Churchill. He's everywhere. He's everything. I wake up in the middle of the night and he's standing there.
<laughs> All right. Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking to you this week. I look forward to talking to you the next week. Bye-bye, Zach.